Welcome to Nature Bets Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This June 2nd, 2020 edition, episode 139 of Nature Bets Last, comes to you pre-recorded from Rakino Island and Aotearoa, from Flinders in South Australia, and also from Central Florida in the United, United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm joined by Professor Guy McVesson, in addition, we have a guest for the Three Country pre-recorded show. Would you do the honors, please, Guy? Thank you, Kevin. We are delighted to have Professor Corey Bradshaw on this show today. Dr. Bradshaw is the Matthew Flinders Fellow in Global Ecology at Flinders University, where he directs the Global Ecology Laboratory and is also Chief Investigator of the ARC Center of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. He heads the Flinders Modeling Node of the latter organization, Professor Bradshaw has published some 300 peer-reviewed scientific articles, 11 book chapter, chapters, and three books. His book titles include The Effective Scientist, published by Cambridge University Press, and from Chicago University Press and co-authored by occasional guest on this show, Professor Paul Ehrlich, Killing the Koala and Poisoning the Prairie. In total, his work has been cited more than 20,000 times. Bradshaw is co-head of the ecology section of the Faculty of 1000, and a fellow of the Royal Society of South Australia. He was awarded the 2017 Verco Medal from the Royal Society of South Australia, a 2017 Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Writers Fellowship, the 2010 Australian Ecology Research Award from the Ecological Society of Australia, the 2010 Scopus Young Researcher of the Year, the 2009 H.G. Andrew Wartha Medal, and a 2008 Young Tall Poppy Science Award. He is regularly featured on Australian and international media for his research. The professor's blog has been visited more than 2.3 million times. You can find it at conservationbites.com with a Y in the bytes of Conservation Bites. Dr. Bradshaw, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, are you happy with me calling you Corey? Oh, absolutely, of course. <laughs> awesome. Hey, um, on January the 14th, Science Alert published an article titled, quote, Tardigrads are basically indestructible, but scientists just found their weak point. New research has shown tiny organisms may have a weakness to long-term exposure to pressure, to temperatures, even in their desiccated state. The longer the temperature are maintained, the lower the tardigrads' chance of survival, end quote. I've always hoped and aspired that tardigrads would be one of the species that would get through the bottleneck. And this research shows that heating is possibly the only thing that is going to take them out. Could you give us your overview on that, please? Yeah, well, when, when, that, when that first paper that basically suggested that you could pretty much do anything to tardigrades and they would survive, you know, shoot them into space, boil them, freeze them. You know, they were the super, super organism. 
which puts them on my um, top five favorite animals of all time list. But um, when when we saw that, it uh, as an ecologist, my my colleague and myself, uh, Giovanni Strona, who um, formerly in worked in Italy, now he's in the University of Helsinki in Finland. We sort of immediately sort of uh, stood back and said, well, that doesn't quite make sense for the simple reason that um, no species operates in a vacuum, even if they're desiccated. <laughs> so what I mean by that, of course, is that all species are interconnected in some way. So, you know, predators have prey and parasites have hosts and plants have pollinators and so on and so forth. So we said to ourselves, look, there's, there's likely um, an overestimation of the survival capability of the species if you only look at thermal tolerance or other sorts of tolerance to extremes. So we started out by just saying, look, um, there's a wee problem with this. Uh, ecology demands that you, you look at species within the context of their entire communities. So you're likely overestimating this, this, this group's um, survival capability. And we wrote that comment to, I think it was Scientific Reports that published that original piece in 2017. Uh, and they turned back and said, well, that's probably a good point, but we're not interested. Uh, so we said, right, well, to do this properly, we're going to have to be a little bit more proactive and unfortunately spend a lot more time modeling what the change would be if you took into consideration these interconnections. So that led to about a year's worth of work where um, now Giovanni did probably most of the coding here, uh, but we essentially developed a virtual earth of interconnected species that represented roughly the same patterns that we see on the planet today. Now, of course, you can't model all whatever 15 million vertebrate species we have on the planet, uh, plus all the microbiome um, as well. So we had, we had to take a representative uh, sample. I mean, all models are a simplification of a complex universe, of course, and all models are wrong. Some are useful, as George Box famously quoted. But models can give you an idea about relative changes based on scenario testing, much like we do with climate forecasting. So we constructed these virtual Earths and then subjected them to uh, changing temperatures, both a planetary cooling scenario, sort of a an atomic uh, nuclear winter kind of scenario, post bolide impact a la Cretaceous, for example, or uh, a planetary heating uh, scenario. Now we, we took these to almost ridiculous extremes, at least I hope they're ridiculous because you know, we, we heated the earth and cooled it down by 20 degrees either way, which would essentially knock out all life on earth. But um, we just wanted to see at what point species were starting to extinct, more importantly, what the additional uh, extinction signature would be from these what we call co-extinctions. So these are the cascades. So if the if the prey source of a predator goes extinct and the predator can't switch, it goes extinct as well. If the host plant uh, dies off, then the pollinator dies off. And we, we know that this happens. In fact, it's suspected that co-extinctions uh, are responsible for most of the extinctions that we're experiencing now. In fact, many many extinctions are parasites and they go mostly unnoticed. A lot of people are happy about parasites going extinct, but it's, a, it's the tip of a, a larger biodiversity crisis iceberg. Anyway, do, kind of, sorry, go ahead. Do, do you think the journal's reluctance to publish was based on how dire the conclusions of your research was? 
No, I mean, I, I think originally the problem was that uh, we hadn't quantified what the difference was. We just said that it would be different. And so we set out to say, well, what's, what's the magnitude of that difference? And they were much more receptive to that, which of course eventually led to the publication that you, that you mentioned. So long story short, if you ignore the co-extinction component, you tend to underestimate extinctions by up to 10 times. Now there's uncertainty there, of course. Uh, and what was even more shocking was that when we, well, the good thing about having a virtual earth is you can play um, virtual God and, and mess it up in any sort of way you want just to, to test different scenarios. So what we did was we played a malevolent spirit and we tried to kill off species as fast as possible. In other words, we took the species that were the most interconnected in the network, in the networks, there were, there were thousands of them, and took out the most connected ones first and so on and so forth down to the least connected. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're, you're trying your best to disrupt that system the most efficiently um, as if you were trying to annihilate life on earth. And when we did that and compared it to the heating scenario, they almost matched, <laughs> which, I mean, I, I get bad news every day as an ecologist, um, any person in my field, I'm sure you get the same message all the time. It's a very depressing field. And even when we published this or when with this result came to light, it, it shocked me. Uh, just how well the heating scenario matched the the worst case scenario. So that's heating. So we were talking about exceeding the thermal tolerance for the primary extinctions and then the co-extinctions cascading after that. So that was the take home message of that paper. Now, that was, of course, it's theoretical. Uh, we can't test this per se, but we do know that we're in a uh, six mass extinction with respect to the current extinction rates. We haven't achieved a mass extinction yet because we have to lose up to 75% of our, over 75% of our species to, to qualify. But we are now, species are going extinct at the same rates that they, um, or higher than they would have done during the previous five mass extinctions. And another sort of proof of concept, if you will, um, some sort of temporal validation is that we know that most of the previous mass extinctions were associated with uh, a large temperature change over a fairly short geological time span. So that's where we are now. However, there's another part of this story that you're probably not aware of because, well, I know you're not aware of it because we haven't published it yet. <laughs> but um, the, we wanted to make this a little bit more realistic in terms of, from, from a policy perspective. So uh, right now I'm actually going through our final version of a manuscript that deals specifically with uh, projections to the end of this century under various um, climate change projections that we that we have fairly good support for. So we're, we're currently tracking at some of the highest um, emissions pathways. And uh, we've now then, we, we've improved the model substantially, added a lot more species, added a lot more ecological realism into them. We allow dispersal, we allow adaptation, we allow um, traits to vary um, according to the different uh, parts of the, the virtual planet. But here what we've done is um, we've projected under the both a climate change scenario as well as a, a land use projection, which includes things like habitat loss and, and pollution and things like that. The take home message here is very much similar to what we 
found before in that by the end of this century, the number of extinctions that we're likely to see, and that's been projected in the past by, by sort of between 10 and 20% that we expect just from thermal tolerances being exceeded. In fact, it's going to be at least double that uh, from the co-extinction signal that, that we take for granted when we look just at the primary extinction component. So everything seems to be falling into place, unfortunately, because this is a message I don't like to spread, but unfortunately I think it's my duty and my responsibility to do so. The idea, the idea of co-extinctions is fundamental to your November 2018 paper with Strona. So, and I know you, you briefly mentioned what that means, but can you go into a little more detail? Our listeners are not conservation biologists. So yeah. if you could maybe give a couple more examples, that'd be great. Okay, um, well, again, we're, we're focusing more on the, um, the capacity for a species to uh, adapt its relationship to the other species that surrounds it. So let's take, I don't know, we'll take for Northern hemisphere people, we'll take a wolf, for example. Now, wolves can eat lots of different prey, but they tend to specialize on larger, tend to be, you know, deer-like species, moose, that sort of thing, caribou in the north. Um, they can survive on smaller prey for some time, but usually, at, you know, they, they can't breed quite as efficiently. They need those big prey to do, to do, to keep the pack structure and to produce at the, at the maximum rate. Uh, and so, let's say the you're in some way in, uh, I don't know, northern Canada or something, and you wipe out all the caribou. And caribou actually are in decline in most parts of the, of the northern range, right around the, the top of the world, from Siberia through to, to Canada and Alaska. Uh, the, as the caribou prey goes down and the specialized wolves who prey on caribou regularly um, depend on them, they will, of course, dwindle. And eventually get to the point where their population sizes are so small that a one-off event like a, I don't know, a bushfire or a, um, a, a very cold snap in the middle of winter or a disease comes along and wipes out the few that are remaining. These are called extinction synergies. So you, you, most extinctions happen from several factors. You, you get a principal driver that knocks the population down to a smaller size. And then you get this weird random event that can happen and wipe out the few that are remaining. If the population had been large and widespread before, that one random event wouldn't have made much of a difference. A great example is the, the great orc, which of course is extinct. Uh, it was a large sort of the, the northern hemisphere equivalent of a penguin. Uh, not, not a great flyer, great swimmer. Harvested for its meat and eggs for centuries, uh, mainly in northern Europe. Uh, and <clears throat> when that that continued for for many many centuries to the point where the last remaining population occurred on a small islet off of iceland uh, now what made the species go extinct it wasn't hunting that islet blew up in a volcanic explosion and wiped out the last remaining population so that's what i mean is that you become susceptible to these random events when you get very small so it's a it's a combination of all these ecological processes that lead to extinction and this is what our model attempts to do. Fantastic, thank you. One of the problems that I have with the presentation of a lot of the science is 
there's, there's almost an assumption that whatever science we know is what there is. And we seem to have completely forgotten the precautionary principle to factor in the unknowns and to, you know, to mention, you know, this is what we know and it can only be worse. And I don't see that being, you know, well, I think it's important to bring that into the, into the uh, conversation. It's, it's important that we realise that there are a whole lot of unknowns in this equation. So every time we push the boundaries, we don't know how far over the cliff we're pushing them. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, the, the, the COVID pandemic right now is a good example of that, um, where, you know, when we do have a, a clear pathway uh, that we can take in terms of, you know, redundancy and, and the precautionary principle, as you say, we lock everybody in their houses and, and uh, we sh shut the shops and we close down the airports and we say, okay, nobody moves. Um, we can control that from a certain, to a certain perspective. If we follow those simple guidelines, they seem to be fairly effective, like in New Zealand, like in Australia, not so much in Italy and America, but um, that's probably because uh, we haven't been as ruthless with the precautionary principle there. Uh, but we do have an opportunity. When, when it comes to biodiversity, because it's generally out of sight, out of mind for most people, the impetus to do or to enact the precautionary principle about saving species is, is something that's so foreign and so um, far away from people's normal everyday thinking that it would, it would take something like the death of a family member, like COVID, for people to change their ways. And I'm, I, I fear that most reactions in a positive manner towards the biodiversity extinction crisis will only happen once the real crisis gets dug in. And that, by of course, that it's too late by then. I mean, we can only minimize the damage, but the damage is, is happening and it's going to, going to increase. And that is a sad reflection of the human condition, but I'm afraid I don't see a, a way out of it. You know, others have spoken and written about a six degree global average temperature rise and have concluded that humans will be fine, that humans will persist indefinitely into the future. In fact, Mark Linus's 2007 book, which led to a National Geographic film, was titled, and the National Geographic film had the same title, Six Degrees That Could Change the World. Yeah, I'd say. So your, your, your scientific reports paper from 2018 obviously reaches a different conclusion than six degrees that will change the world. Can you talk a little bit about how far we've come in, in the, what was it, 11 years between 2007 when Linus wrote his book, and he's not a scientist, he's a science writer. Can you maybe talk about some of the differences between then and your paper and why the conclusion changed so dramatically? Well, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's very much like the tardigrade example. I mean, if you look, if you look at species in a vacuum, including humans, and we liked to tend, we tend to think of ourselves as immune to the vagaries of species transitions over time. Well, of course we're not. Most of our food, in fact, 80% of our crop species uh, arise from animal pollinators. Uh, and half of that is from one species, Apis mellifera, the humble honeybee. So basically one in every six mouthfuls of food globally that is consumed is due to one species, the honeybee. We depend absolutely on biodiversity to live. Uh, it, it 
purifies our air, cleans our water, it grows our food. Everything that we do and the, the, you know, the, the reason that we have come to dominate the planet is because we have exploited biodiversity to our benefit. We are the ultimate ecological engineers. So when you look at thermal tolerances, yes, we could probably you know, divine ways of, of you know, living underground and uh, cooling ourselves and using energy in a, in a way that allows us to persist thermally so we can handle the heat waves and, and the bushfires. But how are we going to grow our food? Where are we going to get our water? You know, the, these are the things that I think if you just look at physiological tolerance alone, yes, we can stand extreme heat and cold for short periods of time. But, you know, you, you take someone's water source away and they're dead in two and a half days or you take away their food and they're dead in a month. Um, so, again, it's, it's this human arrogance that we're somehow disconnected from nature uh, and that because most people live in cities, Australia is one of the worst examples in the world. We have a small population, relatively speaking, you know, 24 million people, or are we closer to 25 now? I can't quite remember. But, you know, 80% of us live in large cities. And so, you know, we might have this uh, legend about the Australian bushman and, and bushwoman who uh, are, are in touch with nature and, and who get out to the bush all the time. That's largely bullshit. Most people live in, in the city and they go to cafes. So there's a massive disconnect between what happens in the bush and what happens in the city. And of course, most of our policies are established by the, the democracy of the larger population who are urbanites. So again, we don't value these systems because we don't see it. We don't even value our agricultural systems until they're challenged. And I tell you what, COVID was one small wake up call in that, in that direction. So perhaps it will do some good in the long run. Speaking of COVID-19, are you familiar with the aerosol masking effect? Yes, to, to a certain extent. <laughs> and so the research, uh, what was it, February 2019 in Science by Rosenfeld and colleagues, indicates, along with an interview that he did at the time, indicates that as little as a 20% decline in industrial activity will cause a one degree global average temperature spike. And that's very quickly. Um, James Hansen said in an interview some years ago, and it, apparently the video has been removed from YouTube, he said it would happen in five days. The general consensus among other climate scientists seems to be about six weeks, but either way it's considerably faster than a growing season. So. If, that's, if we have this reduction in industrial activity, say as a result of COVID-19 or other means that cause us to slow down, it seems like that's gonna to lead to a rapid global average temperature spike that will take us well beyond the temperature we've, which we've encountered so far in our time on earth. And at a rate of change, that would be truly unprecedented. So at risk of sounding already boring and something of a downer. Can you, can you pick up on that and tell us where that might go? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not an atmospheric scientist or chemist, so I can't really comment on the physics of everything. Um, but what I, what I have noticed, and I'm sure that um, many of the listeners will have been following this, is just looking at how our atmospheric um, emissions have changed over the course of the pandemic. And while you know people are talking about clear skies in large cities and 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 wildlife showing up on in, in urban settings much more frequently, 
uh, it seems to be very short-lived and as well as the very small downturn in our emissions profile. Now that's only looking at carbon equivalents. So, you know, are we going to see uh, an abrupt shift in our trajectory? I don't think so, at least not from, from COVID-19, which is probably our biggest experiment in terms of shifting uh, industrial velocity, if you will. So I, I think there's so much inherent uh, momentum in the system that it, it would take uh, a change that makes COVID look like um, a drop in the bucket before we started to see major planetary changes at, at that scale and at that pace. But again, I mean, I, you know, if we hit these so-called tipping points um, that could shift us into an alternative state, uh, both atmospherically or from my perspective, ecologically, then you can, you tend to see these large shifts very quickly. Again, um, this, this is known as the, the concept of hysteresis, which probably is a term most people have never heard of, but hysteresis basically means that the energy taken to move um, a system to an alternative state is much less usually than trying to get it back to that original state once it's shifted. Uh, and then extinctions are a great example too of the fact that you know extinctions don't happen gradually over time at the same rate. As we said, they happen in these mass extinction events. So you, you've, got, you've got a lot of resilience in the system and if you push it just too far, it transitions to this alternative state and then you get a massive change, a re-equilibration, then in, in evolutionary terms, you know, speciation takes over and you get new species coming into the fore. For example, the Cretaceous, which is all over the news right now because of the recent research on the, on the bolide strike at the Chicxulub crater in Mexico. Um, in fact, I was listening it, to it on, on the news this morning coming into work. That killed off the non-avian dinosaurs. Of course, dinosaurs still exist. We just call them birds now and gave rise to alien dominance from which we emerged. So speciation does overall, over average, keep slightly a pace of extinction for the most part. Will humans persist coming back to the original uh, question from Linus? Uh, well, I think we'll be here for a while, but most species go extinct within between one and 10 million years on average. 99% of all species that have ever existed are extinct. Now that's going back to the very beginning of life on earth, you know, 3.5 plus billion years ago. But we, we will come, we, we have come and we will go just like all other species. Will the planet persist? Uh, yes, it will, but will we be around to enjoy it? Probably not just like most other species. Right. Um, there's a paper in nature climate change with, uh, about 15 authors. The senior author is uh, uh, something I can't pronounce, Corinne Lequer, Lequer, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I think he or she is French, indicating that there was a 17% reduction in global carbon dioxide emissions as a result of COVID-19. That's been measured so far. So that's fairly significant, I would think. Anyway, I, I think I think Kevin has a question or wants to head us in the direction of the Great Barrier Reef, which Kevin has spent quite a bit of time looking at. So question from there, Kevin. Yeah, Corey, I see from your research that uh, you've done lots of research and in, in diving on the Great Barrier Reef. And I, I've done the same. I've, I did once did an 800 mile sail down the Great Barrier Reef. I was delivering a yacht back from New Caledonia. 
I went across the Coral Sea and then I sailed the entire length of the Great Barrier Reef. Sounds like a How terrible job. That? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep a straight face when I had that job. People used to pay me to sail around the world. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice work if you can get it, to, to quote the old jazz yeah. song. <laughs> Um, I got an opportunity last year to go and dive the Great Barrier Reef again, and I didn't take it because I'm a little traumatized by those bleaching events. And I've seen the responses of other researchers. And one in particular who called me, she'd gone for a dive and called me on Skype and she cried her eyes out because of the changes that had taken place there. Isn't it extraordinary how you have a government that, irrespective of having one of the great natural wonders of the world, is still exporting coal over the top of it? Mm. Well, yeah, the, <laughs> Australia has a lot of records. Um, a few of them aren't the ones that we should be um, trumpeting to the world. One of them, of course, is we have the, one of the highest per capita emissions rates in the world. Uh, I think we're in the top five. Um, and we lead the world in mammal extinctions. Um, these aren't great statistics. We, we have a government that's been tied in knots about climate change response for decades now, uh, and it's not getting much better. Um, I see this, this is, a, a, I think, a larger, larger problem with the way our political systems are constructed, and, of course, our the corporate mentality that, that drives a lot of capitalist societies around the world, which of course is most of the world. It's this inability to deal with existential threats when they're beyond the scope of a national jurisdiction. And, and, I, and yes, we've had successes like um, controlling CFCs back in the 80s and 90s, dealing with the ozone um, layer and the whole you know, that was an easy fix in the sense that we, we found alternative substances that we could switch to very quickly. Climate change now represents a, an ex existential problem that transcends all countries to, and is such a large issue that flies in the face of pretty much the, everything that we've established politically and socioeconomically that no one country, no one political leader, and certainly no government is, seems to be prepared to make the sacrifices necessary. And that's, you know, we can sign all the accords we want. We can sign up to Kyoto and Paris and promise the moon. We generally don't promise the moon. We promise slight reductions if it conveniences us. Um, and if it doesn't, well, then that'd be, you know, that'd be buggered. We, we, we have this lack of uh, uh, ability to move into a crisis phase. Uh, and, Again, COVID sort of push, pushed us there, but COVID is a you know a dot in the landscape compared to what's coming. And I just fear that because you know we have control of our borders to a certain extent and we can control certain elements, we can get by, get through things like a pandemic, largely unscathed. I mean, there'll be some repercussions, and of course, lots of people have died. But generally speaking, it's not really going to change that much. Climate change is a whole other kettle of fish. And I think it's just the, the size of the problem that blows people's minds so much, even to those who give it some time and give it some thought, that it seems so intractable that no one's willing to make the first step. And I, I, just, I just see this time and again. It's, like, it's kind of like the penguins that are on the edge of the, of the iceberg 
and uh, there's a leopard seal swimming around at the bottom waiting for the first one to jump in. And no one wants to jump in um, because the first one's probably going to get eaten. It's political suicide. And from that perspective, I understand uh, what, what politicians go through. I mean, I, I, in my field, I can, I can, you know, I'm an academic. I can pound my fist on the table all I want. And I'm not going to lose my job. In fact, I'm paid to do so. But in politics, it's an entirely different story. And if you're a policymaker, pushing for massive change that disrupts a lot of people and in, in industries is suicide in a way. So again, I don't feel that we, I don't think that we'll act as a society in time to avoid most of the damage. We will respond to crisis when crisis arise and, and the crisis is not as intense. I mean, the bushfires this season in Australia scared the shit out of a lot of people and rightly so, but these are going to happen again and again, and they're going to be bigger and bigger and more things are going to die and more people are going to die and more property is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be the point where, you know, we're losing entire towns and thousands of people are dying before people start to go, hmm, maybe we should do something about this. I think that issue of nation states being all independent and operating separately is the fundamental reason why nothing meaningful can or will or is going to be done. But getting back a little bit to the Great Barrier Reef and tropical waters, one of the characteristics that we're seeing off the coast of New Zealand now is we're seeing more tropical fish. And you know, we've always had occasional, we've always had occasional um, uh, visits from different tropical fish that were coming down the um, uh, coast or, and ac across the Tasman Sea. But it's happening more and more. And in, in relation to your discussion about co-extinctions, one of my concerns is that we could have a species migrate from the tropics that would take over the habitat of, of species that only function here, and they won't have any um, uh, evolutionary defense systems about them. Could you give me your thoughts on that, on that aspect? Oh, well, that's happening right now. In fact, I'm involved in several studies that are, that are examining that. So the tropicalization of temperate zones is what the phenomenon you're describing. Um, we first started um, talking about this over 10 years ago. We, we mapped the transition of what we call macrophytes, so seaweeds, on the east and west coasts of Australia. And uh, within about 50 years, the, the whole seaweed community, so all the species of seaweeds, essentially transitioned a degree and a half, so a degree of latitude, degree and a half south, so that's, that's about 160 kilometers on the east coast and about a half a degree on the west coast. The, the East Australia cone is a lot stronger than, uh, than the, the Lewin cone on the west. So we have this transition of an entire community such that today, off of the coast of southern Tasmania, it's essentially the same as the, the community that was off the coast of Sydney 50 years ago. We are tracking uh, vagrant tropical fishes in Sydney right now. We have several papers coming out shortly about that. And a lot of these species are starting to establish. Now, you're, you hit the nail on the head with coming back, coming back to the seaweed example. Seaweeds need to be in a certain depth of water to be able to reproduce. They can't just be in the middle of the ocean. They need usually a, a hard substratum on the seafloor. So as these things move down the coast, that's fine for a certain, to a certain degree. And then when they get to the south, the next bit of land is Antarctica. 
In other words, they're just going to be pushed off the map and go extinct. And we're already seeing that now. And, you know, just like forests on the land, seaweeds are the force of the sea. And many of the species that we um, exploit and, and enjoy in, in the oceans start their lives in these sea forests. So we're going to see cascades of, of extinctions in the oceans far before we see them on land. Uh, the, <laughs> in fact, the paper came out just a few days ago, showed that the, the species are tracking, uh, the, tracking their preferred climates six times faster in the oceans than they are on land. Because, wow. yeah, six times. So they're moving towards the poles six times faster than the species on land are doing. Uh, so the, the extinctions we'll see will be much greater in the, in the seas, not to mention all the other stresses like pollution and, uh, you know, deoxygenation as well as acidification from increasing CO2 levels. So I, I fear that our marine environments are going to be depauperate well before we see the major crises on land. When I started my professorial career at the age of 28, I was stunningly idealistic and amazingly naive. I just, <laughs> I thought, that if, <laughs> I just thought if I did research and published it, then policymakers would obviously be listening and watching every word. And as soon as the information got out, they would take it and they would apply it to whatever situation we were in that was proving problematic. Now we can't even ask people to wear a mask. And somewhere along the way, I lost my idealism, <laughs> at least a significant portion of it. So, but I don't want to, I don't want to drag this whole thing down. So what's the best part for you about being a professor? I had some amazing experiences and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, but I'd like to hear your perspective. Well, you know, this, this is a long conversation we probably don't have time for and cover all aspects. But uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've gone through some of my, uh, my own existential um, crises through my career, uh, mainly because it's, we, we call them AMBOs in Australia. So ambulance drivers who often get post-traumatic stress disorder because they see death and destruction every single day and depression is rife and, you know, um, they need psychological assessments and treatment. Uh, it's very similar in my field. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, uh, including myself, and I'm not sh ashamed to admit it, have had mental health issues. And um, we're dealing with these crises every day. And a lot of us are, are PTSD, you know, and it's, I can't describe it any other way. That said, I still get out of bed in the morning and I still come to work when I'm allowed to. And um, the reason I do it, it's because of my daughter, essentially. Um, I have a 13 year old, in fact, she turns 13 today. She's taking the day off school and having a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a home party. No, no other children invited, of course. And she really made me think, you know, look, as, as, as doomy and gloomy as I tend to be, because I am unfortunately been pushed into a pessimistic corner, just given the sheer weight of evidence, that if I can extend the pleasant parts of her life, even by a decade, or I can reduce the magnitude of the damage somewhat by something that I do, or I convince someone that it's a crisis and they should do something about it, then I've justified my job. That, 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 that keeps me going. And, and if I didn't have that, I think it would be difficult for me to 
um, continue doing what I do. Of course, I'll, I like the academic life, the freedom. Um, I can I can work on things that that more or less please me. I, I I'm more of a mathematician these days, so the beauty of mathematics is it's there's just no bullshit. One plus one equals two, and no one can convince you otherwise. There's no politics involved. Maths is pure. It's beautiful, and that you know I'm never happier than when I'm coding. <laughs> So there's, there's, and you know, seeing young minds grow and become their own independent scientists and, and engaging your brain every day, of course, those are wonderful things. And, and I'm very fortunate. And I, I agree. I'm also um, a middle-aged white man. So all the privileges have been in my corner for so long. Uh, we're, we're addressing that, but you know, I, I do acknowledge that I have been fortunate um, just because of my color and my gender. So I, I, um, I'm very, I'm very, grateful for those components that said you know it is it is a struggle to continue to do what i do understandably i understand it probably better than most people do mm. um you've been awarded many times for your work beginning quite early in your career which of these awards has particular meaning for you and why it's a interesting question i think I mean, um, the awards that I uh, received were, most of them were when I was a little bit younger. I'm not so young anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, the, the awards is sort of just, I don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about those awards, except for the fact that uh, in academia, to be recognized gives you a certain amount of freedom to choose what you want to work on. And, you know, it, it alleviates some of the other responsibilities, administration and uh, too much teaching. So there's something that we pursue. Um, but you know, it's what, if you receive a prize, you sort of say, well, that's, thank you very much. And that's very, uh, very nice. But then you move on to the next thing. Uh, I, I, so I have, to, I mean, I don't want to sound contrite or, or, or unappreciative. Um, but the, I think of all those so-called awards and prizes that, that have been bestowed on me, I think the, the main one was when I spent a month in um, Bellagio with the Rockefeller Foundation on a writing fellowship with Paul Ehrlich. And um, Anne Ehrlich, Paul's wife, was there as well as my, my wife. And uh, we spent a month in uh, nothing less than sheer luxury in a castle. <laughs> the Bellagio Villa is, this Villa Serbelloni is called, is stunning. And the views over Lake Como are something out of a film. And we were treated like kings for a month as we wrote elements of our next book. Um, just the ability to, to appreciate those that, that, you know, basically a castle full of brilliant minds for a month without having to worry about any other elements in my life was, was something I'll probably never do again. And um, that was special. So I, I you know, again, that's <laughs> something that's a bit, unique and doesn't happen to a lot of people. So I appreciated that probably more than anything. Right. That's pretty amazing. Mm. Um, I'm sure you've heard about Extinction Rebellion. They're probably as active in Australia as there are other places. What are your thoughts on that movement? Well, I've participated in several um, demonstrations myself with Extinction Rebellion. I've spoken to the group here in, in Adelaide, the South Australian uh, group. Um, and I've been in contact with several of them regarding, you know, bits of evidence for some of the things that they're demanding from government. Uh, 
my my daughter has been in the climate strikes and I've gone with her. Um, so uh, she's got this wonderful placard that says, and Greta is my home girl. <laughs> and we even, we even uh, tw tweeted that once and, and Greta retweeted it. So that was quite fun. Uh, but uh, it's, it's one, I think, Extinction Rebellion is one feather in the cap of resistance and demanding change. In, in Australia, we have a group called GetUp, which is, it covers a lot of areas, you know, socioeconomics as well as environment, but they're extremely active and extremely effective. And that's just one of many. And I think the more these organizations build and grow their base, then the more effect we'll have at grassroots levels. And, and so I'm starting to see that change in Australia and it's good. I think we need more, much more of it. Um, and I, I would never expect a single organization to be able to move political will in the direction it needs to go. It's, it's really a combination of, of grassroots uh, and, and many organizations and people. Right. Yes. Getting a bunch of people on board to do anything is pretty challenging. I <laughs> testified to the, I think it was called the Environment Committee of New York City, and the following day they declared a climate emergency. But New York City declaring a climate emergency doesn't seem to have much meaning. I don't, I don't think much has changed in the wake of that conclusion. That was a, about a year ago, I guess. So how do we move the needle? How do we as researchers, as thinkers, as scholars, in our case now as radio show hosts, communicators, how do we, how do we move this unmovable object? Well, you're right. I, I, you know, if I look back at my entire career, the, the number of times that something actually changed from the work I did, I can count on one hand, and, and they're usually quite small. I mean, I've fronted up to parliamentary hearings, and, and I've uh, done reports for the Environment Protection Authority, and, and I've done, um, I, I've talked to ministers, I've talked to politicians, I've talked to policy advisors, and occasionally you see something happen. I mean, Last year, one of my papers was tabled in the in the Australian Senate um, by one of the Greens leaders, and it was simply, in fact, I think it was on the paper we we talked about uh, at the beginning of the interview about the co-extinction uh, crisis looming, and uh, you know it was tabled in the Senate, but did did any legislation get passed as a result? Of course not. Um, I spoke to the South Australian Parliament uh, earlier this year. Uh, sorry, late last year with Paul Ehrlich, who was visiting Adelaide. And uh, we both fronted up and, and, and five politicians out of the entire parliament turned up, which is the science meets parliament. Uh, and they were very courteous and there were a few people there who were, who were listening and, and certainly on board. But of course, the majority weren't there and didn't, didn't care. So, you know, what can, what can we do? Well, we can continue the communication. But as you rightly stated, if you even if you publish the best stuff and you communicate it to the world and you do these sorts of things, and I do a lot of media, uh, you know, these are mostly viewed as interesting stories at best. What I can do though, is I can work with, for example, my university, I'm on a sustainability committee and we're working towards divesting um, our portfolio from all fossil fuels. I mean, it's a, it's a lengthy process, but I'm involved directly with the people doing that. We're also involved in, you know, turning our energy supply into um, 
uh, entirely renewables at the university. So we, we, we now can run about a third of the university's electricity just from the solar panels that we've, we've invested in, put on the car parks. Uh, we're putting in train lines, you know, to reduce the number of cars, th those sorts of things. And, you know, this is a little bit out of the scope of my expertise, but it's something that um, because, you know, I'm a little bit longer in the tooth these days, I have something of a, or at least people appear to, to, to ascribe some sort of authority to me in, in an environmental term. So if I, if I can go into committee and say, look, we should do X, Y, and Z, and enough people agree, then maybe we can move a policy forward. But they're, they're fairly small scale. And I guess I've lost my idealism as well that we can affect change fast enough and large enough that it, you know, it will turn around these climate and extinction crises that we're seeing. But you know, if we can get local groups and local people and local organizations to change in a positive way, I think that's probably most of what we can ask for. Um, and you know, those small wins are worth it, but you have to realize that they're not going to save the planet. Okay, I want to return to the scientific reports paper, the abstract of, abstract of which concludes with this line, quote, we show how ecological dependencies amplify the direct effects of environmental change on the collapse of planetary diversity by up to 10 times, end quote. And you mentioned earlier this 10 times figure and you revisited it in subsequent work that hasn't been published yet. Let's assume our listeners are not scientists for the most part, because they aren't. And can you describe for our listeners how such amplification is likely to play out? What does that actually look like? Uh, okay, well, I'll just put it in more into the context of the recent work that, as you mentioned, isn't published yet. So right now we're looking at an extinction crisis that's largely been driven by things like deforestation. So agricultural expansion just to feed our growing population has wiped out over 80% of, of the forests um, that we've lost since about the 1950s. We have, we're polluting a planet. We are, we've overexploited many species to extinction. We've added invasive species. I mean, that mammalian extinction record that we have in Australia is largely due to cats, feral cats, because cats never evolved in Australia. Uh, so we've got this backdrop of an already very compromised system uh, and no country is immune. And, as I mentioned, the, the oceans are probably potentially worse. So when you've got this backdrop of a degraded system and a lot of species just hanging on, the bushfires in this country this, this year alone probably put another thousand species on the threatened list. Uh, then you add in the heating, right? And so all the, what I explained earlier is that you've got all these compromised populations of all these different species, and then you add in that heating on top. It's just literally between the, the frying pan and the fire, you've added the fire and you push these species towards that extinction. So it's, it's you know, one, two, three, four, five punch, and then you're out. If, if it was a single punch, we could probably get through largely unscathed. The other problem, of course, is that climate change is, is relentless. It, it's, it's continually getting worse. So I, I like to use the example of, the Australian red gum, which is a very hearty species of gum tree. I think it's been transplanted around the world. Uh, beautiful big gum tree. Uh, it tends, we call it the river red gum because it tends to be on the edges of rivers. It can go 10, 15, 20 years sometimes without a drop of rain. Um, it tends to exploit uh, very 
ephemeral and local flooding regimes from, from rivers. But of course, we've dammed all the rivers and there's not a lot of water to start with in Australia. But these are very hardy trees. They grow in shit soils. They, you know, they can handle the droughts. Now, if your flooding regime is fairly constant, for example, you can go 10 years and then a flooding event comes along and, and you, you, you survive. But if it goes 12 years, you lose maybe 20% of the individuals in that population. And then if it goes 15 years, then you lose a bit more. So basically, an event will come along like a drought, which will knock down a certain proportion of the population. And if there's enough time between that, between that event and the next event, then you can rejuvenate your population and grow it back up again. And you're constantly fluctuating. But if those, those extreme events are getting more and more frequent, which is exactly what's happening, then you never have the time to recuperate from the previous event. And so you're constantly being knocked down. It's like a death by a thousand cuts, really. And eventually you go extinct. And we're seeing more and more extreme events, but we're seeing them more frequently. And I think that's the part that's missing from most people's uh, vocabulary and vernacular is that it's not just about the intensity or the magnitude. It's about the frequency. And that's essential to understand how bad it is. Right. Thank you for that explanation. And thanks for serving as our guest today. It's been a wonderful conversation. We very much appreciate it. Uh, it's very nice to have the opportunity to elaborate more than the, the typical five minutes on an interview. So I appreciate that very much. Hey, Corey, it's been wonderful um, chatting to you. And uh, I'll take the liberty of asking on link here if when you get this new paper published, when you come out, maybe we could discuss that as well. Uh, uh, that'd be wonderful. Absolutely, um, yeah. Just hang on for one second after we go off here and um, we'll just have a, a personal goodbye. To the listeners, cool. thank you for listening to our pre-recorded show. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be broadcast live on Tuesday afternoon, the 7th of July. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at prn.fm, Podbeam, or Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Thank you very much to Apprezen for his music, and until the next time, remember the dominant culture is very clever, but in the end, nature bats last. She's gonna get you Yeah, she's gonna get you